0: Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on BlogTalkRadio.com. Now, here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history.
1: not really a Dodger baseball. It is time for the Root & Root Show. And we haven't done a live show in quite a while, but this is Greg Rasheed, the host of the Root & Root Show. We come on, I used to say Fridays and Saturdays, but I have moved to the Midwest, so we're going to be coming on on weekends and some in the middle of the weekend. We're still trying to figure out the time and all, but this show has been on for two, going on three years now. And, and if you want to call in the numbers four. Two see, I even forgot it because I haven't been on in two weeks. But four two four six seven five eight three one five, four two four six seven five eight three one five, and I played that Vince Scully, who's in his final year of, of announcing, been the Dodger announcer forever, Los Angeles Dodgers announcer forever, and I played that because I'm talk, I'm about to talk to the author of a brand new book that's really, I mean, it's um, and I have to say this. The Dodgers have been one of my favorite teams. Although I never saw the Brooklyn Dodgers, but I always got into the history. And then when they, I obviously have seen the L.A. Dodgers, and that's my favorite stadium, Dodgers Stadium. A lot of people don't know that, but I'm saying it on the air today. Yeah, the Dodgers Stadium has always been my favorite stadium, even though I spent 20 years and 11 of those years as a sports Hosts and journalists in Denver, Colorado, and love Coors Field, but Dodger Stadium is amazing, and I'm just happy to have read this book that's from the University of Nebraska Press, and I have the author of the book, Dodger Land, It, Los Angeles in the 1977-78 70, Dodgers, and that's one of my, two of my favorite Dodger teams. I'm talking about uh, Michael Fallon. Are you there, Michael?
2: Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hello, can Oh, great. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks. for you know, first of all, thanks for coming on the show today. And again, you can call in at 424-675-8315. And also thanks for writing a great book because it's not, you know, it just struck me when I got the book and started reading it, that is, you know, it's, it is a sports book, but also it's a personal family history. I wasn't aware that that's what the book was going to be about. And also it's about, politics, the history of L.A., in a sense, the history of Brooklyn with the Dodgers, and also just the history in the mid-70s of the free lifestyle in L.A. And it's just amazing. You know, I was just amazed when I was finding out that you were not really, you know, actually, yeah, I mean, you were. You lived in L.A., but you're based in Minnesota now. And how does someone that's a nonprofit manager and a writer on arts and culture end up writing about The Dodgers in L.A.
2: Well, you know, this is the team that I followed when I was a kid and uh, growing up in Los Angeles. I lived in uh, the Los Angeles area for the first 25 years of my life. Um, And then I sort of set off on this wandering path, uh, went into the Peace Corps, and then went, lived in Alabama for a while, and then finally moved to Minnesota. And that's where home is. Uh, and I've, uh, you know, raising a family here in Minnesota, um, a few years ago, uh, in 2010, you know, that was the middle of the recession and a lot of people were losing their jobs and a lot of things were changing. Um, and that happened to me and I actually had a three month old daughter, uh, when I lost my, my, a job that I had at a nonprofit and I, you know, I started writing, I had been a writer all along, a freelance writer, and I started writing stories about my youth, and the Dodgers kept coming back up. Uh, so, you know, it took a few years, and then it t- it took shape into the form that it that it is now. Uh, but it was a lot of different things that I was you know working through myself and thinking about at the time.
1: Well, I think you did an excellent, a superb job with this book. it covers so much, and you do it in a concise way because it's it's not a huge book, but the territory that you cover. And the fact that you concentrate not only on the Dodgers, but four Toms in particular that being your father, Tom Fallon, Tom Bradley, who was the chief of police of LA and then the mayor of LA, Tommy Lasorda, and also the writer, uh, Tom Wolf. And, you know, I can understand why you would figure out, you know, why you use uh, Tom brad I mean, Tom, Tommy Lasorda and your father, Tom, but tell me why you decided on other two to concentrate on.
2: Um, well, first of all, it, it's actually Tom is uh, my grandfather. I'm um, oh, sorry. So, so he was he was uh, he was in, at the time that the Dodgers were um, playing in the in the 70s. He was in his 60s. It was at the end of his career, and he had a hardware store uh, in Cucamonga, Cucamonga Hardware. If anyone, if any listener remembers that place, uh, I have vivid memories of it when I was a kid. It was about 100 years old when it was almost 100 years old when they bought when they bought it. It was established in the late 1800s. Um, you know, I have to go back, take a step back. I mean, I, I was saying that I, I was out of work and I was sort of thinking about my childhood, um, but also in the mix there, somewhere around that time, I had seen the movie um, on, I, I believe it was an ESPN movie, uh, the, the Bronx is Burning, which is based right on Jonathan yeah. Mahler's book. And Jonathan Mahler's book told the story of the 1977 Yankees. And I remember when I was watching that, and then I later went on to read his book. I remember thinking it was a really rich story because it brought into, it brought in some of the social activities, things were happening socially in New York time and the politics. It was mayor Ed Koch's uh, race that he upset uh, his, his opponents in the mayor race. And it was the summer of the son of Sam killer. And, um, you know, I, I just started imagining what the opposite side of the story would be, to tell a story about the Los Angeles Dodgers who lost that World Series. In fact, they lost two straight World Series to those Yankees teams. And that was the team that I followed as a child. So I think that's what led me into thinking about how do you tell a story like that? What, what aspects of L.A., what characters would I follow to tell the story of what L.A. was like at that time? And that's how I sort of settled on Tom Bradley and Tommy Lasorda and then my grandfather came in because I was thinking about well it was a really interesting time for people who were kind of dealing with changes in the real estate markets and changes in businesses and things that were happening and I and since I had sort of started writing about family you know he came he became more and more of a character in the book and then Tom Wolfe was sort of the last one where I was trying to say I was trying to think how could I tell the story of this crazy social milieu that was happening in LA at the time right. There was so much going on. And he had written so much about L.A. throughout the 60s and 70s that – and it it happened when I was thinking about, um, you know, the 1970s as the me decade, and he's the one who coined that phrase. And he focused that whole article – after I read that article, it was all based on uh, what was happening in Los Angeles with the – the sort of self-help movement that was going on. And and it just, you know, the, the fact that it's four toms was just kind of a funny, fun thing for me. But it really seemed like those were the strongest characters to tell the story.
1: And, and you have a number, I mean, you interweave so many strong characters in the book besides those four. Because you talk about the Dodger team itself. And, you know, and you contrast, you know, you think about, like you were talking about the, the movie, the ESPN movie, "The Bronx Is Burning," based on a number of books about the Yankees of that era, and you know these Dodgers are always contrasted as the squeaky clean team compared to the Yankees. Like, compared to the Yankees, but in actuality, they are the typical baseball team, and there were a lot of issues going on. And Tommy Lasorda was kind of the, I have to say, the ringleader on a lot of that. And I just want you to talk about uh, some of the characters on that team that are kind of forgotten compared to some of the Yankee players, but are very important in the history of baseball, in the history of, you know, in the history of L.A., not only as a, as a team, but as a city. And I want you to start off with the uh, probably the most well-known player of that period for the Dodgers, Steve Garvey, and his just contradictory ways.
2: Yeah. Steve Garvey was an interesting uh, figure on the Dodgers. He, you know, growing up, I was an 11 and 12 year old at the time and everybody that I knew, you know, all my, my fellow baseball fans, um, we all loved Steve Garvey. You know, he had that clean cut image. Um, he was so, you know, he was a strong, uh, he was a hard worker. He, he played, he had a, uh, you know, consecutive game streak that started about this time. And, uh, and he was very consistent in his in his hitting as in his approach, you know he always ended up the season batting around three hundred if not above, slightly above um and there was you know he was always accessible to fans and the media, but he rubbed a lot of his fellow players the wrong way because he was very conscious about his image early on you know he had sort of the this sort of um stereotypical all-american kind of look he you know he he was sometimes called uh, his his wife was cindy garvey who was also a television personality and uh they were called ken and barbie by you know derisively by some of the players but you know the the, the advertisers saw him on the dodgers they saw him as an all-star and they saw him you know the fact that the way that he interacted with fans and they immediately latched onto him and he became a Something of a media star, he and he was in a lot of uh, lucrative commercial. He had a lot of commercial um, endorsements, and he wasn't a guy. He was a very serious guy, um, and he did not drink. Uh, he didn't carouse. He didn't go out with the guy, you know, with the team. And he was, you know, raking in the money and and you know you, playing this image off when um, at a time, uh, you know, when it was when endorsements were becoming very big for uh, athletes. And so there was some jealousy there was you know and then there was also a, the factor that um a lot some players knew that he was not all that he um portrayed himself as uh, right. he was just like any other ball player he was you know he was um philandering i guess you could call it uh came out uh, you know came out later on in his career uh he, he you know that he was just like any other ball player who had access to a lot of different adoring fans and and I think that rubbed people the wrong way, um, that, that he was kind of – that there was a phoniness to his image. Um, uh, but, you know, he's a fascinating character, and, and you know, the fact that I – he was my favorite player for a long time, and, of course, I was devastated when – well, not devastated. That's overstating the case. But I was disappointed when I found out, you know, that he had had troubles in his marriage and he had had children out of wedlock and all these things. Um, but, you know, he's human, and he, he – you know, the woman that he ended up with after his career, he's still married to these days. He's been married for over 25 years. You know, he's, uh, he does a lot of good charity work and he's, you know, he's just a ball player. And, um, but it was a, it was a big component of this team because he was a big central figure and, and got a lot of accolades and there was jealousy. And, there, and then there was also just people that thought, um, you know, that, that he was pulling the wool over other people's eyes.
1: Right. And then there's the, um,
2: Uh, The other Reggie, not
1: Reggie Jackson, but Reggie Smith, who was one of my favorite players back then, my favorite player on that team, as a matter of fact, and also one of my favorites when he was with Boston and St. Louis and eventually the Giants. And talk about the conscience, because he had actually kind of the image that the media portrayed Garvey as. He was a family man and everything, but he was not able to. Get that publicity, and some of it happens to be frankly because of race, but also other things and just talk about Reggie Smith because he is definitely kind of a forgotten figure in you know in a lot of people's eyes compared to someone like a Reggie Smith or Steve garvey,
2: yeah, Reggie Smith was a beast on the Dodgers in those two years, and um there's a scene in the in the second year in nineteen seventy eight when um you know he was kind of a focal point uh that ended up being a fight between. Don Sutton and Steve Garvey, uh, because he was really the most valuable player on that team. Uh, he he was a you know he his uh, he was great in the field. He was a he was really a five-tool player. Um, and I think what's really interesting about him is he um, he's probably his career was cut a little bit short by injury. But he you know he never was really considered for. You know, his. I think he he didn't last long in the All Star balloting, or I'm sorry, in the Hall of Fame balloting. But he, you know, the, his career statistics hold up as well. He was a great player. Um, the problem was that, you know, there's the issue of race. Of course, is the double standard of how, especially back in those days, how black athletes were treated, um, and and you know, discounted in terms of contracts and and endorsements. But he also had the the mis, uh, the misfortune of playing in Boston and St Louis, which were difficult places for a, uh, you know, very smart, very outspoken um, uh, black athlete to play. He did not get along well with the fans in Boston and St. Louis. Um, He was, um, you know, so he was sort of like a a Dick Allen figure where um, he knew he had talent, he knew he had had smarts, and, you know, he just – he didn't appreciate the way people didn't embrace him as a player – and he had some troubles with management because of these things, and he was kind of considered a malingerer, you know, uh, you know, one of those troubled players. But what was what was really great was, you know, uh, the Dodgers, of course, have a tradition of, you know, being a, a West Coast team and, and, and being more more open than the norm in, in terms of, of race and, and providing opportunities. And Tommy Sorta really embraced uh, Reggie Smith, um, said, look, I know you're a great player. You're my guy. You know, and Reggie Smith was sort of taken aback that he said, "I'm going to stand by you no matter what. I want you to carry this team." And he'd never been told that by a manager before, by a coach. You know, the expectation was you just, you know, just shut up and play. And Lasorda was, "No, you're you're my guy." And so he really responded to that, starting in 1977, and and that really helped make the mix of that team that much better. You know, Lasorda's openness and enthusiasm was the perfect thing for a player like reggie smith and he did he had really great monster seasons he he had some injuries injury problems especially in 1978 um, as well and then he you know his career ended a few years after this a little bit prematurely because he had lingering problems with his shoulders um but he really was an amazing player
1: And and you mentioned also and by the way Listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. I'm talking with Michael Fallon, the author of this excellent book, Dodgerland. It's on the University of Nebraska Press, and I believe we have a caller here. Let me just check this here, Michael. Are you on the line, caller? I think they're... Are you there? I think they're just listening, Michael. Okay. I think people listening, and they may be a little shy there. But I want to ask you about somebody that, you know, we talked about Reggie Smith and Steve Garvey and Tommy Lasorda in a sense. But there was a player that the Dodgers traded who they really thought was going to be, some people were saying he might be the, next, the new Willie Mays. And I'm talking about Glenn Burke, and he was a good friend of both, ironically, Steve Garvey and Reggie Smith. And talk about him because he is a very he is a very important person in the history of not only baseball but sports by what he invented and also what who he really, who he really was and he fits into the L.A. lifestyle of that era.
2: Yeah, Glenn Burke is a, a person who um, is is pretty well known in in baseball circles for who he was. He was the first uh, baseball player to come out and and you know declare himself openly gay he didn't do it while he was a player he did it a few years after and was interviewed in um i believe it was esquire there was a, a story about it that came a few years after his playing days and uh he was traded away in 1978 um he was he was one of the uh, heralded rookies of uh that had come out of the farm system in 1976 77 and he was untested. So, you know, I, I, th- I thought about him and did a lot of research about him yeah, because there's some people that think he was unfairly run out of, off the team, um, by, uh, the management. Um, and in particular, some people focus on Tom Lasorda, um, But there's also, you know, in my view, if you're thinking about a team with the the, the playoff pressures that they had in 1978, they ran away with the league in 1977, but 1978 was a much tougher year for the team. They, they, they struggled uh, in, you know, second and third place for much of the season for two thirds of the season. And, you know, you know, uh, Glenn Burke was on the team and he wasn't, he wasn't producing. um, So they traded him away. So I, I'm not, completely sure, 100% sure, you know, how much it was, had to do with, um, you know, Glenn Burke being gay and and wanting to get him off the team or, you know, just being in the thick of a pennant race and needing to find one more tool to get them to the playoffs. Um, Well, one thing you
1: mentioned in one one chapter with Burke, you talk about uh, Tommy Lasorda's son, Tommy Jr., who was known as, what, Spunky, I think? And talk about their relationship. Because I The underlying uh, Reading that chapter It seemed to me that that was a reason That he may have been traded Because of that relationship
2: Well there's a lot of speculation about that um, Tommy Lasorda's son uh, Tom Lasorda Jr. Whose nickname was Spunky w- uh, Was gay And he was But And Tommy Lasorda d- Never publicly as openly Acknowledged this fact Um but and he, the, by all accounts, he was close with his son. He loved his son. Um, at the time, uh, he was, I believe, he was about 18, 19 years old, uh, 1977. So, uh, and he struck up a friendship with Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke struck up friendship with him. Uh, as to how, you know, what that friendship was exactly, it's unclear. Um, it was, it was clear that. Tom Spunky Lasorda, Tom Lasorda Jr., uh, you know, was a part of, was involved in the gay lifestyle, was involved in gay nightlife. He liked clubs. Um, He wanted to be a fashion designer. Um, He was, according to all accounts, he was incredibly um, uh, charismatic uh, person. Uh, He he was sort he had like Tom Lasorda's gruff voice, but he, you know, in this beautiful young body. So he must have been a very striking uh, person. And, you know, it's I think it's pretty normal for baseball teams to say you are a member of the team. You're a professional baseball player, but you don't fraternize with the families of coaches or, you know, know." It, it would make sense that he might be upset that to find out that his son was cavorting in any way with a baseball player. And it might have been something that would lead him to trade the guy away. Uh, I think before that, you know, they, um, you know, this is a lot of this stuff comes from Glenn Burke's own memoir, uh, which is a book called out at home, which, which I think I believe in the last few months it's been reissued. So if anybody wants to learn more about, right. Yeah. If anyone wants to learn more about Glenn Burke, he's, he's talked extensively about his career and, um, but he you know they didn't really talk about he didn't talk about what the what exactly his relationship was and um he said that um before he was removed from the team or traded away from the team the uh the Lasortas sent you know Tom Jr to LA to to work on his uh to get some schooling some education in fashion design so but uh, i think in his memoir he says they you know they they sent him away so that he wouldn't hang around with me anymore. It's unclear to, you know, when you're reading the memoir, how much of what he says is some bitterness about, you know, losing his career because, you know, he was traded to the A's um, in 1978, and the A's were a team that were on a downward spiral. Uh, He didn't thrive there. Eventually Billy Martin became the coach there, and Billy Martin was, according to his account, was particularly cruel to him. Um, he didn't say anything of, of that nature to about Tommy Lasorda that Tommy wasn't cool to him. He just, um, you know, they, he just got, you know, removed from the Dodgers. Um, and so he didn't last long on the on the A's. He I think he played an, another season before retiring. And he was, you know, at the end of his life, he was bitter about it. Um, he eventually passed away from uh, complications due to HIV. But uh, when he was still fairly young, but he was in his memoir, which was an ad told as told to book, he was not a he was not happy about how his his career went.
1: Yeah, very you know was very bitter. And, and listeners, you should pick up that book because it is. I'm glad it's been re released because it's really just a fascinating tale of, you know, as we can say, a pioneer as far as the, you know, being gay and admitting his gay and, in in major league sports. I just you know that baseball was just major league sports and also. A little sidelight, they say that he may have been the inventor of the high five, that he may have been the one that created the high five, him along with Dusty Baker.
2: Now, another thing right. that
1: I, oh, go ahead.
2: No, I was gonna, I was gonna agree with you. That's that's part of the lore, and, um, you know, there's there's competing, I didn't go into this in the book, I know there's competing, um, claims to that title, but there it had been documented very early on, uh, uh, at the end of the 1977 season, he gave Dusty Baker a, a high five at home plate.
1: Yeah, I want you to talk about it also, because I had not thought about it this way until you reading your book, but how those two years are really the experimentation kind of, I think that's how you say it, of free agency. And talk about that and what the results are for the Dodgers with free agency and all of baseball in general at that time.
2: Right. Well, the um, 1977 season was a very unsettled season in a lot of ways. Um, um, a lot of the old-time baseball fans were very upset because free agency came around in 1976 um, with Andy uh leaving and getting a, a large contract to go play with the Braves. And uh, in 1977, there were a large number of baseball players that were going to different teams and getting paid what was then considered outrageous amounts of money. The average salary jumped up somewhere, I believe it was something like 50% between 76 and 77. Um, and and then it continued to increase at a high rate after that. And, you know, it was, it was untested water. It, um, a lot of people thought, well, could this kill baseball? And the fact is that baseball also in the 60s and into the 70s had not really gained any audience. In fact, the the, the audience for baseball games and, and baseball on television had stayed basically the same since the 1950s. It was not a growth sport. Uh, what was happening was that where more and more people were tuning into professional football and professional basketball, um, and football passed baseball sometime in the 60s. And in the uh, 70s, it, was, it, it appeared that basketball was going to actually surpass um, baseball. So there was concern, you know, people were projecting that, oh, here's the salaries are going up and the the fan base is not um, increasing and there was a lot of worry and concern at the beginning of the 1977 season. There were a lot of think pieces in newspapers and a lot of people being interviewed and people like Sparky Anderson saying, I don't know what's going to happen. This is crazy. Um, and then also there was a uh, a dynamic where a number of people's contracts had ended in 1976, like Reggie Jackson, and they cashed in. So there were a bunch of people, Joe Rudy, Reggie Jackson, uh, Bobby Gritch, um, you know, people that were the first wave of full free agent class of, of players. And then there were a lot of players that were stuck on their teams that weren't cashing in and, and they were very upset. So there were, you know, even on the Dodgers, there were, um, the Dodgers never really got heavily involved in the free. It took them many years to get involved in free agency, but they had signed, they had traded for Rick Monday and Rick Monday had um, signed a multi-year contract for a million dollars, which was unheard of there. So he was one of the highest paid players on the team. And uh, Don Sutton and Tommy John were very upset because they were veteran pitchers who knew they didn't have tons of years left on their careers and, and they were not cashing in in the same way, but every team had their version of this. The Reds, um, Pete Rose held out for a few uh, f- for a little while in spring training because of uh, contracts. Um, Tom Seaver was incredibly unhappy. Jim Palmer was unhappy um, because they were seeing other players getting these huge contracts and they didn't have them. And this right. really was an unsettling thing but what i argue is that by the end of the 1977 season especially i think that the key moment in the entire thing was uh reggie jackson's three home runs in the world series which was just a stunning you know nationally televised event where people were just ecstatic unless you were a dodger fan of course and you know after that everybody said oh you know that the fears about free agency were over in fact this they knew that this would never have happened if there had not been free agency. And Reggie Jackson sort of made it okay to say, you know, this is kind of entertaining. Uh, and, and in fact, the, from that point on, baseball became more and more popular and, and did better and better and, and grew all into the eighties and nineties and
1: so on. Right. And the Dodgers eventually got into free agency, but it did take them a while and they lost a major pitcher back then. in, in Tommy John after the 78 season, and there was a lot of bitterness right. about that. Yep.
2: And, yeah, they were I'm reluctant. Gonna... You know, they go were... ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, they were reluctant to get into it, and a big part of it was the O'Malley family. You know, they were they right. were very much the traditionalists, and, and uh, they did not want to get into it. And then when they got into it, they made a lot of bad mistakes <laughs> starting out. So uh, it took them a while to sort of catch up.
1: You know, I mean, there's so I mean, there's so many characters in this book. We could go all day in this, but I was sup- I was like amused by the fact that how you threw in there because this is a, it's a very important because it changes entertainment. But talk about how you put in there George Lucas and Star Wars because I was fascinated how you know I'm reading one minute and all of a sudden, wow! And the way you put that in there and what happens to entertainment and it, how it reflects L.A. and just the whole world, actually.
2: Well, yeah, there's a couple things going on. One is I was trying to sort of envision the year, the, these two seasons through an 11 and 12 year old's eyes. And I I remember seeing Star Wars the first couple weeks that it came out. I was I think it was the first movie that I went to by myself and sat and watched the movie. Um, so it was you know it it, it had a big impression. On me. And of course, it obviously had a big impression on the on the culture. Um, you know, we were still living in the star Wars era today. Um, but, but I think what I was, what I was in a bigger sense, you know, writing a cultural history like this, I was looking at what were the main trends, what were happening. So you see the corporatization of baseball. You see um, really in a lot of ways, you know, 1977 might've been the start of the end of, of family owned baseball. You know, the O'Malley's who, who you know, they were, uh not you know there was they were sort of out of times uh they were out of touch with the times by by being this traditionalist in an era where you're going more and more towards big budgets you know big superstar free agents uh you know big television contracts these kinds of things um and the same was true in Hollywood you know the Hollywood uh blockbusters the the Star Wars and the and the year before Jaws um sort of changed hollywood so you see and I like how you know reggie jack also
1: if i can get a rough i like also how you throw in the uh, john wayne as 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 far as old hollywood
2: right you know you have this old i mean john wayne just kind of he stumbled in the motion pictures he was an athlete at usc and and he injured himself so he lost his scholarship so he started working at studios and he was uh, you know just a studio hand and started acting in a few films and then, you know, suddenly he was one of the biggest stars on the planet Um, and, you know, represented this sort of old way of doing things. And, uh, you know, before you had agents, before you had gazillion dollar blockbusters, um, you know, I was in my mind, I was seeing the cultural connection between Reggie Jackson getting, you know, his $300,000 a year salary to, you know the gajillion dollars that Star Wars eventually earns, um, and and then also sort of trying to think, well, what does that mean, you know, to an average ordinary person? What does it mean to an 11-year-old kid to see these things happening and unfolding? And you know, what does it mean? And 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 this was really a big, uh, you know, this just really understood and underlined what uh, what Los Angeles was and what what the Dodgers were in Los Angeles and what it, what it, you know with all the uh, you know, just the way the culture was going.
1: Right. And you really have just really, I mean, I could talk to y'all the there so I mean, you could do a whole hour on just Tommy Lasorda, <laughs> you know, you could do a whole hour or so on Tom Bradley and the whole, the Mario race and all the tension that was going on at that time. And, you know, all of this, you could just dedicate, you know, your family, we could do a whole hour on that, but, I just, you know, I'm just, you know, just happy to have you on here, and I just oh, want thanks. you, you know, I just, you know, I just want to ask you uh, the final thing: Who did you hope, you know, because it's not just a baseball, but who did who are you hoping to reach with the book? Because it's more than baseball.
2: That's a good question. I, I don't know if I had a particular audience in mind for this one. I, I I think in some ways I was answering to a couple of different books and different authors in a, in a way, maybe I wrote the book for Jonathan Mahler uh, who wrote the Bronx is burning and told the story of New York. And I was trying to, you know, trying to answer like what, what was happening on the left coast at the time that, that he was obviously immersed in in, and trying to understand what was happening in New York. Um, Also, I was answering a little bit to my first book. Um, I wrote a uh, a book. I had a book published. I actually started this Dodger book first, but I, when that one stalled uh, for a while, I started the second book, which in, ended up getting published first. And it's about the 1970s in Los Angeles as well, but it focuses on the visual artists. And so the, you know, that is a very much the fine arts, the the high culture ends. Um, under because uh, my history isn't is uh, in the arts uh, and I've done a lot of writing about the arts and so I was writing about all these art figures and then I was trying to think about well what was happening that was more that you know people were the widespread population was involved in not yeah. not the, the the high you know the highbrow art world so I was kind of answering to that book as well and and sort of looking at the flip side like what was you know, what was happening for just ordinary 11 year old kids. Um, and and uh, I guess another thing too, is I, I sort of wrote it for some people in my family, my, my brother um, and my father, uh, who also of course lived through this era. And my, my father, his name is James Fallon. He, um, he was in, he worked with and owned the hardware store with Tom, with his father, Tom Fallon. So, you know, I was thinking about father-son relationships and, and family relationships, and it's an interesting thing in my family because um, my family's roots are on the East Coast. My grandfather was an orphan in Philadelphia in the 1920s and 30s, and then he moved to New York, and, and my father was born in Albany, New York, and when he was 10 years old, they moved all the way across the country to uh, in the 50s to California when a lot of people were doing that. And he grew up in, you know, he grew up the rest of his childhood and, and adulthood and had started his family in the uh, in California. And of course, his family, I don't know if there's something that happened because of the family history, but we all dispersed too. So it's this question about dispersing, you know, what's your family roots, what's your origin, right. and and where do you end up? And this, of course, a very American story for a lot of people, but I was thinking about that as well, and kind of writing the story as an homage to sort of the times that we had together in California. And my dad has uh, been reading the book. I haven't talked to him. He's, he was about halfway through last I thought about the book. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah, you. Yeah, he, so. he said he loved it. He loved it, and he was really enjoying it. He said his favorite part was seeing his own name in print. But <laughs> <laughs> but he also, well, everybody
3: likes that. Also, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but he also said that he um you know really took him back and he was rem- you know I was remembering things that we experienced together and it really put him right back in that era which I thought was the best compliment I could have gotten from anyone to, to you know to say that he, I brought my father back to those those times that we you know that we lived together um and that you know that was a big part of I think what what I was trying to do um maybe not so consciously but subconsciously uh trying to write something that we could experience together as a family.
1: And, you know, I think you did a superb job of it. And also you brought me back to '76 because I was in college at the time, 77, 78. And, you know, just remembering all that and just thinking about, you know, those teams, the Dodgers, and also Cincinnati, because I was in Ohio going to college and I remember the rivalry. And I was, as I was reading your book, and this is my last question, do you think, If it was reversed, do you think that only Tommy Lasorda could manage that type of team, that Dodger team? Or could Sparky Anderson have managed the Dodgers and Tommy Lasorda managed the Cincinnati Reds?
2: Oh, that's a good question. They would only speculate on that. Um, And it's interesting because they were – I think it's possible, although they were very different kinds of managers. And in, in particular, uh, Sparky Anderson is not is not really known as a pitchers manager. Uh, you know, known for handling pitchers. And you know, the Dodgers had a lot of pitching, and the, and Tommy Lasorda was a Dodger pitcher. So, you know, he had. That's one thing that's oftentimes overlooked about these Dodger teams is they always had excellent pitching. And that was a big heart and soul of their team for, you know, from the 70s into the 80s and all the way through. Um, They always had really good pitching. And um, Sparky was, was, from what I've uh, understood about him, and, you know, maybe Reds fans would would argue against this, but he was ambivalent about pitching. He was more about
1: hitting. He was (laughs) was Captain Hook yeah he kept yeah he,
2: yeah he wanted he you know he just he just wanted arms out there, but he was all about getting runs and scoring runs, and you know he he so I don't know that they he would have thrived with this group of guys, I don't know i mean he he wanna he would have wanted to tip you know make the team that that he was comfortable with. i think what's really interesting though is that um these guys they're very different guys um Sparky Anderson lived in California and, you know, Tom and the lived in California. Uh, Sparky Anderson was a minor leaguer in the Dodgers system. And, and They've known each other for years, or they had in 1977, and, and um, they were at each other's throat all season long. They were sniping at each other in the press. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was all kinds of things. I put a little bit of it in there, but there was a lot more. Throughout oh, the was a whole, yeah,
1: I remember that distinctly. <laughs> I mean, it was a real well, war. And, you
2: know, yeah, there was, and and the thing is, uh, I don't think people remember. The Reds were a huge rivals. The Reds and Dodgers were huge rivals in 1977-8. They had been in first. They'd been first and second place for nine of ten seasons before that year. And you know, there was only one year where the where the Giants uh, ended up beating out one or the other of them. But they were most of the time it was the Reds in first place and the Dodgers in second. But they were, I mean, they were the two most competitive teams for a decade before, uh, before the 1977 season, and uh, and the Dodgers had always lost out, uh, except for in 1974 where they some they managed to make it to the World Series, uh, and 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 Sparky Anderson fully expected the Dodgers were going to lose again. But remember, they still had, I mean, they had the bulk of the lineup from the Big Red Machine. Um, they'd lost Don Gullett, which was, I think was a big loss for them. Um, they just didn't have as much pitching. But, it, you know, halfway through or about two-thirds of the way through the 1977 season, they picked up Tom Seaver. And so, again, it was, oh, we're going to beat the Dodgers Any you know again. And um, I like how you the said, you you talk on. about that
1: uh, Lasorda's reaction when they got Seaver, actually the whole team. I mean, they thought it was like the end, even though they were in first place. Yeah.
2: Well, and they were in first place by, like, 15 games or something. I mean, right. they were way ahead. They but, were worried. But, they, they were... but that will happen when, you you know, you've been beat out by a team for 10 years. <laughs> they, you know, yeah. they they were they must have been looking over their shoulders all season oh, long. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, you know, I want to thank you so much. And someone actually has to – maybe you should write this book on the rivalry between the Reds and the Dodgers because that's a fascinating thing. That's, a ten, like you said, a 10-year history. And that's something that's kind of forgotten now. But they had a serious rivalry. People talk about the Yankees and Dodgers, but that Cincinnati Red, LA Dodger thing—that was—that was something. So you know, I just yeah, want to thank w- you. Oh, go ahead.
2: Sure. No. I, well, they were they were hindered by the fact that they weren't very close in geography, and you know, then the Reds ended up being moved out of the division. Um, you know, and then there's always the Giants rivalry because they're across states. Right. Um, so there's good rivalries with the Dodgers. It's very fun
1: you know, that was it was it just it was superb, as your book is also. And Michael, I just well, want to thank, thank you, you so, much. so much for being on here and look forward to meeting you sometimes in person. Just thank you for you know, just writing just an informative, just a great book, not only on baseball history at that time, but also the history of LA, history of the movie business, politics in LA, and your family. Just thank you so much for doing that.
2: Thank you for having me. I was it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it.
1: All right, you take care.
2: Thanks. Bye.
1: And again, that was Michael Fallon, author of the book, Dodgerland. It's all about the decadent Los Angeles and the 1977, 78 Dodgers. And it's not, as I said again, it is a sport book, but not really a sport book, really pick it up. It's on the university of Nebraska press. I know you'll enjoy it as a social, you know, sociological history of an era and of a, of a city and of a state too, because it gets into all of California. So I'm just, you know, just happy to, you know, become one of my favorite books. And I'm not just saying that because I just had more. It's a very good book. But anyway, we're going to get to music now. I'm going to switch it up because a lot of you, you know, I the last time I was on live, I did a two-hour show on Washington, D.C.'s Go-Go Music because I'm from Washington, D.C. And a lot of people love this. I'm going to play some now, starting with D.C.'s own Sweet Cherie. And she's going to do an instrumental of Can't Let Go. So let's hear that in the herstyle Go-Go. So let's hear that on the Root & Root show.
2: do this joint, Mr. Magic. Sit back and chill on this
1: joint. Groove with us.
0: Give it up for James Cotton, everybody. Sax extraordinaire. Can we load the, lower the
2: lights a little bit? not for TV. I'm not sure how that works.
0: show rare essence turn it up something new from them featuring dj cool turn it up it's my joint right here let's go
1: that was the one and only Rare Essence with DJ Cool and Turn It Up. That's a new one from them. And if you don't know Rare Essence, I've played them a number of times on the Root & Root Show. Get to know them because they're one of the best bands out there out of D.C. And before that, we did E.U. with Sugar Bear, and that was Ooh La 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 that was from the 80s. Then we did the Ovation Band with James Cotton on sax, and that was uh, the Grover Washington Mr. Magic song and their interpretation on Go-Go. Then we did DJ Cool, I Got That Feeling. Then we did the only female go-go band in D.C. right now, Belladonna, and that was the Adele song, Hello. And I did that before as far as with B.Y.B. singing Hello, but this was Belladonna's interpretation. And before that, we did one of the members of Belladonna, Sweet Cherie, and Can't Let Go on the Root & Root Show. And I hope you can't let go of the music. And that went out to, in particular, those folks that love Go-Go Music out of D.C. And also, my buddy Steve Stalsley, who suggested the last show I did at the two hours of All Go-Go. So that was for my buddy Steve, who's on KUHS Radio Denver and all over the world. And that's created by the great Henry Archer. And we're on here. You'll hear this show, if you're listening in Colorado, on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. But there are folks who are listening on iTunes listening live on blogtalkradio.com wherever you're listening I hope you enjoy the music and
2: the interview I had
1: with Michael Fallon earlier about the Dodger, Dodgers and the book Dodgerland, but we're gonna get to more music and I, I'm gonna still do a lot of funk here and that this is not go go but I'm I'm gonna do a little bit I haven't played this I haven't played any songs for her in ages but this is Betty Davis if you don't know Betty Davis this, she was married to Miles Davis and I'm going to play Game is My Middle Name, and this has everyone on it from the Pointer Sisters, Sylvester, members of uh, Sly and the Family Stone, members of Santana's group, and this is from 74. Let's see, Betty Davis, Game is My Middle Name on the Root and Root Show. We'll be right back.
0: back. Started riding the bike. Huh. Listen, they're making milk out of powder. Yeah, they are. Got the baby crying. Poor oh, baby, they know what that stuff
3: is.
0: Rinse going up high, you Yes, it is. Got the parents lying. I
3: think it a power.
0: Lord, it's the real. The fire, yeah, yeah Make you wanna run for cover Yeah, it will And if you look, you will discover Yeah Lord, it's a real Oh. Yeah, yeah. Good dog Listen Got to go to a disco Your troubles away Damn to the music yeah. that the DJ play. Well all right. And then the lights come on. Yeah. Like you knew they would. that <laughs> cold. Gone home and face the music. Don't sound too good <laughs> listen, listen Lord, it's a real motherfucker. fire It'll make you wanna run for cover, yeah And if you look, you will discover, yeah Lord, it's a real motherfucker, fire, yeah, yeah. Oh! I'm a low and I'm mm-hmm. oh, I better stop giving me two hot dogs and a strawberry sauce.
1: And that was Glenn Jones from 1981, no 84, and we've only just begun. Before that, we did Johnny Guitar Watson and A Real Mother for You. Then we did Betty Davis, the one and only Betty Davis. And Game is my middle name. That's what we are, Gaming on here on the Root and Root Show. And I hope you're enjoying the music here. We're doing Go Go earlier, but I started to do some more funk, then I slowed it down a little. So we're gonna, I think we'll do another slow jam here. I think we'll do. Herb and making love in the rain. So let's say that on the Root and Root Show.
0: I know somebody else that went, oh now y'all up in it feeling, he ain't did nothing for me in a minute, I cut him off just like the end of a sentence, he see me with somebody else no more pretending, (laughs) boy you thought that I would never leave, I tried to compromise, I'm wondering do you still love me, cause I don't see it in your eyes, I don't me. Don't feel like you still love me I'm all up in my feelings I feel like it is something bad What am I doing wrong? You gon' miss me when I'm gone Best that I could ever do, but you had too many to me. Sometimes I feel like I still love you and let you get the other hand. I don't feel it when you're with me, feel nothing when you kiss me. It's like a big ball, and it hit me. Yeah, what am I? And now you're trying to treat me like your other baby I'm no part-time lover, I'm here everyday You want to hit the streets and go on the head the other way Cause gon' going to miss me when I'm gone I bet you feel all oh, so alone Boy, I'm done trying so many tears If you don't love me, somebody else we
1: Tweet and uh, Missy Elliott, and that was uh, Somebody Else Will. And before that, that was a new one by Tweet, by the way, my lovely wife. And before that, we did uh, The Intruders from 19 to late 70s and Rainy Days and Monday, the old Carpenter song. And before that, we did uh, Herbie Man. I mean, Herbie Man. I mean, Herbie. Herb Alfred. I'm going to do some Herbie Man sometime. Herb Alfred and Making Love in the Rain with Janet Jackson and Lisa Keith. And I hope you enjoyed that on the Root and Root show. We're going to get out of here now, but if you want to reach us, because a lot of the, a lot of the subjects I have on the show are based from listeners like yourself who email me at Unifix U-N-I-F as and Frank I-C-S as and Sam Unifix at hotmail.com. A lot of people email me there and they suggest topics for the show. Music also. They go to my Facebook site Greg G R E G, last name Rashid, R A S H E E D, and they leave messages there for topics they also go on twitter hashtag Unifix, u n i f is in frank i c s is in sam hashtag unifics and also they go on the blogtalkradio.com site and they leave messages and we got a lot of followers that are following us now just growing in the last two and a half years three years now of this show so i just want to thank everyone out there and i want to say we'll be back next time on the root and root show i mean we doing these shows on the road right now but we will be settling in and doing some straight shows for you and doing more and whatever you request we will put on here so again this is Greg Rasheed going love and going peace and we will see you next time on the Root and Root Show